0: Friends, good to see you all and I hope that you are are doing well. We have a lot to cover this morning and if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter 8 and if you're feeling crunched and scrunched sitting next to the person that you are, you can come sit up in these two wonderfully open rows right here. Perfect. Best seats in the house, let me tell you. Exodus chapter 8. So we're beginning a new chapter this morning. We are making our way. Now remember, so we are in the the plagues or the the great signs that God gives to Egypt and to bring about judgment of Egypt, but remember the purpose behind them, the overall purpose behind each of these plagues or or signs in Egypt is ultimately is to redeem his people. We learned that, I believe it was back in chapter 5, that he says that I'm going to redeem my people. He's going to show them that he is going to be their redeemer, and that's a huge theme, right? And for us, the, us, we know the Bible well enough to know that this theme of redeemer flows throughout the Scripture and culminates on Jesus Christ, our redeemer. And so we we don't want to leave that right that idea of God redeeming his people out of Exodus or out of Egypt is is paralleled to, to, the, to Christ redeeming us out of sin and death. And in these signs, we don't want to forget that. And so we can look at this story to not today in the Exodus whole story together through the lenses of the gospel. But the, the question that we asked, have asked ourselves a few weeks ago, and I think it still continues with each and every one of these signs is, if redemption is the purpose, then why not why doesn't God just get to the point, right? Why doesn't he just get to the point, deliver Israel already? uh, Because surely he is capable of doing so and delivering them all at once. Well, the, the answer to that question is actually quite simple. It may not be widely accepted by many, but it is the truth. And that is God is judging Egypt and he is As we see in each and every one of these signs, he is systematically dismantling Egypt. He's dismantling their their belief system and what they trust and what they think is their authority and their rule. And in doing so, he's teaching his people not to rely on other gods or other things, but to rely on him and him alone. I.e., the lesson for us is to look to him. So each sign is a direct attack on their worldview and belief system, their false religion, on their hopes and on their values. And here's what God says in his his word in chapter, from all over the place, right? From chapter 5 all the way through chapter 14 is so that the Egyptians would know that he is the Lord God and that he is sovereign over everything. Now at the end of chapter 7, after this first encounter, like the, the showdown that began between the Lord and Pharaoh, you know, the snakes and the, ser- or the, the serpents and the, and the staffs, and God's serpent swallows up the serpents of the, of the Egyptians created by the, the magicians. The Lord tells Moses to go out and see Pharaoh in the morning down by the river. I don't think he was in a van. And to go tell, his, tell, or tell the Pharaoh to let his people go. And we know the story. And we know the the outcome of that story because God has already told us from the beginning. He's not going to let him go because his heart is hard. His heart is, is hardened. And so what does God do? God turns the whole river Nile into blood. And in doing so, he exposes the Egyptians' false hopes that they cannot, that the Nile nor the gods of the Nile could give them life or sustain them because when it's taken away, we see what they turn to their hopeless response of digging ditches for water. Just like what natural man does. When when one false idol doesn't work, we just turn to the very next thing. And I don't need to repeat preach that message. It's up on the website. You can listen to it. But in our message this morning, or in our passage this morning, we see the continued judgment of Egypt, and we still see the same futile response of man so in Exodus chapter 8, we're going to start reading in verse 1. Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come upon you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand. With your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up over the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his staff over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their own secret arts and made frogs come up from the land. And then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with Yahweh, with the Lord, to make the frogs to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and, and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you in your houses and left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. Moses said, be is it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh, our God. The frog shall go away from you and your houses, in your servants, and from your people, and they shall be left only in the Nile. And so Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried out to the Lord about the frogs, and he agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did, according, as, according to the word of Moses, the frogs died, in the houses, in the courtyards, in the fields. And as they gathered them together in heaps, the land stank. And when Pharaoh saw that there was, there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And this is the word of the Lord, and may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and our joy, Amen. There are many things in this world and in this life that we can point to and we can say, this is how you know the Lord has a sense of humor. Right? We can, we can point to several things and we can say that. But the question as good theologians that we try to be, we like to ask the question, does God really have a sense of humor? Particularly in the way that we would think a sense of humor Would be, does does God laugh? Now that may not be such a serious question, but I bet at some point, maybe at some point in time in your life, you might have asked that question, or maybe a child asked that question, maybe a child has asked that question to you, or maybe now they may be wondering it now since I've asked that question, or maybe a teenager's wondering that question. Does God have a sense of humor? Well, the answer to that question, and I hope that you can answer that question, is yes, is God has a sense of humor. But we have to make sure that we understand what that means, and that means that God does not always find the things that we find funny funny. He's not humored by sinful things that sometimes we can be. But the answer to the question is yes, yes, and we can see a, a sense of humor in creation. I mean, we can look at all kinds of examples, but the one that hit me, the first, that, the first one that hit me when I was thinking of this was to consider the giraffe, right? What a, what a funny-looking creature that is. And what a delight that must have been for him to create such an odd, odd thing. Did you know that a giraffe has a purple tongue? A purple tongue, right? Right? You think of the brown, the black spots, or dark brown and tan, beautiful looking animal, but still kind of funny looking, but with a purple tongue. And why? Why does a giraffe have a purple tongue? And the answer to that question is simple, because God said so. And that's funny, because God said so. And the very fact that God made a purple tongue so that my kids can go to the zoo and see it as it's eating the lettuce and say, "Look, that's funny! A giraffe has a purple tongue." Then, as parents, we can say, "God created the giraffe to have a purple tongue for you to laugh, to enjoy, to delight," and that rolls up to the glory of God. That's why. Does the Lord have a sense of humor? Of course, we see it in in the Bible. Right, throughout the Bible, we're told to rejoice in the Lord. We're told to delight yourself in the Lord, to be satisfied in the Lord, to take pleasure in the Lord. And in all of these ways, it's, it's all the ways that we des- it's describing how we are to be happy and how to we are to enjoy and, and enjoy God, right? There's this emotion in which as his creatures we can re- enjoy him, right? Was has a sense of idea of enjoying him, a sense of humor in a way. To what? To enjoy his goodness. And all of these emotions of joy can be found in him, in the Lord himself. And to quote some of our Christian hedonist friends, the Lord is a mountaintop of joy. There is no one more joyful or more satisfying or satisfied in himself than him. And I think we see that throughout scripture. And so if that is true, then of course we have to understand see that God is, has a sense of humor. He smiles, he laughs. We ourselves are capable of having a sense of humor. And we, we consider that to be a, a well, well-liked trait, a trait that we all could, could enjoy as, with each and other's uh, sense of humor. And in banter, and were we not created in God's image? Is our sense of humor, in a sense, an expression of the image of God? We also see in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who showed emotions throughout the Gospels. He expressed joy and sadness and empathy and sympathy and compassion and love and pain and also humor. Jesus was born like us. He's 100% God and 100% man. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus went to a party. He went to a party of a tax collector, and he enjoyed himself with his disciples. And the very fact of, in that, because he went to this party of a tax collector, he was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. And you can hear the words of Jesus as he responds to his disciples and his Pharisees. And in that, you can hear some humor. Like, how do you like when Nicodemus he comes to him in the night, he's like, how do you not know this, Nicodemus? It's almost like there's a there's a humor that's built within in the text. And now to get to the point, what does this have to do with Exodus chapter 8? I think it has a lot to do with Exodus chapter 8, because reading this passage, you have to see the humor in it. Isn't Exodus chapter eight, verses one through fifteen, just a little humorous? I mean, yeah, listen, the one before the the Nile turning into blood, man, that's that's pretty serious. We don't like to see rivers of blood. We don't like to see pools of blood on the ground. We don't want to see a river of of blood. That's that's serious. That is Crazy, that's what we would look at. We would say that is supernatural and that's unmistakable. But, but here the Lord he chooses to do something that seems very ordinary, right? Something that takes something that is so ordinary and something so unsuspecting and to take it and multiply it in such a way that no one could stand the sight of it. And yet, it is still just like the river of the Nile turning into blood is supernatural and unmistakable. And what is it that he does? What is it that he uses? Frogs. So all of this is building up to frogs. Right? We can laugh at frogs. Now there's this very much, a very specific reason why God uses frogs Frogs as a sign to judge the Egyptians, but certainly as Christians we can read Exodus chapter 8 and we can stop for just a moment at its face value and we can see the humor in this and maybe just laugh and chuckle a little bit that God would take frogs and humble the most powerful man and nation in the world. Frogs. You can laugh. Please laugh at frogs. Frogs. God has a sense of humor, and I hope that the people of God get this. I think that Israel got a pretty good laugh at this. And what I think is so surprisingly funny and what is so great about this text and something that we can delight and we can enjoy in is that through these frogs, the Lord is showing his superiority and his sovereignty And I want to show you that in three different ways, in three distinct ways. First, I want you to see how everything is in the hands of God. And he can use literally anything to humiliate man. Back in chapter 7, verse 25, Moses gives us some commentary timeline. And that is seven days of the the Nile River flowing to to blood. So seven days have passed, and that may not seem like a long time, but again, this is huge when you think about their entire water source and economy being shut off for seven days and the land stinking like death. And as we know, things are about to get uh, rough and, and tougher, but not to mention the psychological effect of realizing that your false gods cannot deliver you. And this is a symbol of judgment upon the land of Egypt. Now, as as bad as it probably got, Pharaoh doesn't relent, right? We know the story. He doesn't relent. He just goes hiding into his house. And what we know, because Moses gives us the commentary throughout Exodus, letting us know why. Because God has hardened Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh has hardened his heart. And so we know that this is the plan, and the plan is right on track. Now, in the first part of our passage this morning, we see the means by which the Lord continues to judge Egypt, showing us that everything is in the hands of God, large and small. And he uses even the smallest of things to humiliate the most powerful of men. And like the first sign, the Lord tells Moses to go speak to Pharaoh and to speak Pharaoh what? Tell Pharaoh what? To tell him the word of the Lord. In verse 1, the Lord commands Moses to speak very familiar words to us, the words that we know that go out throughout the scripture, and that is this. Thus says the Lord, right? Very powerful words, which tells Pharaoh that as Moses is speaking, that Moses is just the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. He is the prophet of the Lord. But more importantly, these are not my words. These are the words of God. These are the words of Yahweh. The authority behind these words are his. These words are divinely spoken. So me speaking these words, thus saith the Lord, thus says the Lord, Pharaoh, you better listen. Now, what's interesting about this is the last time Moses used that phrase before Pharaoh, do you remember how Pharaoh responded? We've, we've said it for the last couple of weeks. And that is in chapter five, verse two, Pharaoh asked, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Remember, Moses says, thus says the Lord, let his people go that they may come worship me in the desert after a three days journey. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? Do we we think maybe by now Pharaoh knows? Do you think he has some idea now who Yahweh is? And we see in the text, certainly he, he does. And particularly he doesn't ask that question again. Who is this again? Who are we talking about? He has an idea because he knows who he has squared off against. And in the phrase, the King James Version actually sounds cooler. Thus saith the Lord. The Lord is sovereignly announcing that he in his word carries weight. His word is authoritative. He is announcing his sign and his plague is coming. Can you or I speak like that? Our words have some weight but they do not carry the weight as thus says the Lord. He is in control. And his hand is is sovereignly working over all things and at everything is at his disposal. It's the Lord's word who has authority, not Pharaoh. It's God's voice that has authority, not Pharaoh's voice. Pharaoh is not the Lord, nor is he God, and what is commanded that he, that he is to do again no surprise here we've been going through this let my people go that they may serve me a command right a command to of the lord that it's not only demanding the obedience of pharaoh but is also firmly stating the lord's sovereign possession and purpose and what is his possession his people the hebrews his people are of his own possession They're mine, Pharaoh. These are my people, not your people. And they are only in in Egypt to serve my own purposes and my plan. And now it's time for them to leave. And by the way, it's not just the Hebrews who serve at the purpose of God, but the Egyptians as well. And all people serve to the purposes of God. But God is calling his people to come and to worship him. And we've seen that since chapter 4. And what does that show us? That everyone, including his people, are in his hands. And he does as he wills. His people will be delivered for the worship of his name. And Egypt is being judged for his own glory. Now looking at verse 2 is the announcement and the consequence If you do not let them go, which we all know that he won't. We just read the story. We know the end of the story. He's not going to let them go. Then the Lord will, it says, will plague your country. So here's the word plague. This is where we get the 10 plagues from. And the word here, plague, literally means death. God will bring death upon your country. The Lord is telling Pharaoh, I am bringing death upon you. Now, what would you expect from this point when you think of a plague? We're we're thinking of real plagues, right? Or maybe we're thinking about storms or tornadoes, things that would bring death in, in volcanoes or hurricanes or whatever. But oh no, what we see here in this passage is that the Lord's plan is something worse. Brings death by frogs. The plague of death of frogs. The Hebrew word here for frogs that's used isn't actually the, the usual word for frog. It's a, the word that's used here is actually croaker. So he brings up death by croakers, by croaking. And if you've ever been camping out in the woods nearby any water and you hear this deathly hollow of frogs that just echo and keep echoing throughout the night as the frogs get louder and louder as they croak. So, so why, why frogs? Well, certainly, I think there's the psychological game of hearing millions and millions of frogs croaking all at once. But first, we see, some another, we see another reason is this, is that, again, we see a direct assault against the Egyptians' worship, right? The Egyptian goddess of the River Nile, we saw her name was, was, was happy. And, and we see the irony of this, of this sign. And here he makes is making fun of another goddess. Another goddess of, of actually the river Nile, and, and her name was Haket. And she's one of the gods also of the Nile. So here's the connection: is that here's the connection of her, why he's going after her. And that is, she has is always pictured as having the head of a frog. What a lovely god that must have been. Has the head of a frog of a frog, and sometimes portrayed as having the, the body of a human or also a body of a, of a frog. And in this particular goddess, and in their particular lore, she, she was married or the wife of the Egyptian creator god who created human bodies, and then she, Heket, would breathe life into the human body. Another lovely picture of a frog kissing you to bring life. She was considered to be the goddess of fertility, and she was worshiped as the goddess of fertility, to bring fruitfulness not only to their, to their families with, with children, which was certainly um, very important, but also to give life in other ways, farm animals and horses and also their crops, to have fruitfulness in their, in their crops. And so when, when frogs were in the land, because they had frogs, remember this wasn't, it was the river Nile that went through the delta, and that brought life, which brought frogs. And so frogs were often worshipped. They were protected. They wouldn't kill frogs. Frogs were, emblems and frogs were placed all around the nation. And, and when a frog was heard in the river, to them it was a sign of life and fruitfulness. And so here God says, you want frogs? I'll give you some frogs. So that's the first reason. second reason is, is, I think there's a picture of providence here. Again, the, the assault against this uh, goddess of he- Heket, who is supposed to give them life and fertility and, and fruitfulness and farming and having children. But if you remember all the way back to chapter 1 and chapter 2, what was Pharaoh attempting to do in, uh, in, in trying to squash the Hebrews? He was trying to squash their fertility and their multiplication. You remember, he was committing infanticide and trying to kill children, the the children, the Hebrews, trying trying to quell their numbers for they had multiplied. And so what is God doing here? I think God is showing a reverse in the curse here, is that he is showing that he is greater than this evil. And by doing this, he is once again crushing the head of the serpent with amphibians, and the third point, and I think this is the, points us to display of sovereignty like none other, and that is because as the people of God, we can just, we can laugh. And we can look at this and see how funny this is. Because this is only a strategy that God would use. To take something so small, something croaking and slimy, and slippery and hard to to hold on to, these hopping creatures, and he uses it to foil the plans of the wise. But as we see in the text, it's not just one frog. It's not just hundreds of frogs. It's millions of frogs. There are literally frogs everywhere. In fact, the text says it is a swarm of frogs. And it co- they cover everything and they get into everything and everywhere. So, so part of the passage, right, is to get us into it and for us to think and try to imagine ourselves there or placing ourselves there. So put yourself there. Frogs by the hundreds have invaded your house. Something has gone wrong, right? Number one, you're wondering, why is my dog hasn't taken care of these frogs yet? Well, if there's hundreds of them coming through, not even the best of dogs can help you out. They're in your bedroom now. And they're getting into your bathtub and into your sink. They're now in your bed and on your bed. They get into your stove and your oven and your dishwasher and refrigerator and in your cabinets and in your pantry. That's a lot of frogs. No one or anything or any place is spared from this death by croaking. And in verse 6, as it says that Aaron stretched out his hands on the over the waters of Egypt, so frogs came and covered the land of Egypt. Millions of frogs on the loose descending upon Egypt. Something so precious to them. The frog that they once worshipped and would care for and, and, and would and would not want to die, but they would be thankful to see something so significant yet so small overwhelms them by the millions. Does the Lord have a sense of humor? Yeah, you better believe it. But in this sense of humor, he is displaying his sovereignty in a way to humiliate man who is so proud. And how man is also so It's so futile in their struggle against God that he can even take frogs and humiliate humiliate them. He doesn't use just big things. He uses the small. He uses the mundane, the slimy. I love this because here in verse 7, you see the magicians, you see these guys show back up. Bumbling fools. And by their tricks, by their secret arts, they come and they they show themselves, look, we can make frogs too. And again, like last week, right? Pouring out the good water back into blood, and they're like, no, we need a reverse of this. They cause the problem, they cause more problem by making more frogs. They're like the the kid on the pee-wee basketball team that gets confused and ends up scoring the shot on his own goal. That's these guys. And the point here, brothers and sisters, is just like where we see other places in the Bible, the Lord has the means and and the ways to do whatever He likes. And just like here, He doesn't, He does something that no one ever would have done. And yet, by doing this, He is clearly demonstrating once again that He's the only one can because He is the only one that is truly sovereign. This, this church, as I know it, you may be grossed out by frogs, but this should be very encouraging to us because God's word over and over and over and over and over assures us, assures us of his sovereignty. And it assures us of his sovereignty not to make us proud, not to make us prideful, not to make us overconfident, not to make us lazy or disobedient, But it assures us over and over and over again, even with frogs, to be bold. And to be courageous. To be assured. To be planted firmly on the foundation of Christ. To be hopeful. Not in fear. And to be joyful to always have something to be joyful about and to always have something to rejoice in. We of all people, not comparing ourselves to other people and other generations, Christians and Christianity has always had something that to struggle and toil with, yet we know ourselves that in the times that we live as Christians, as God has ordained for us to live in, we live in difficult times. And we live in difficult times now where Christianity is no longer popular or is no longer the guiding worldview. And we have been and will be and will continue to be marginalized for our beliefs. Even here in Stapesboro, you will be marginalized for your beliefs. It's just the way it is. But I believe texts like this tells us that, that even though that we may be made fun of, you may have names called at you. There may be jokes or whatever else may come your way. I believe that text like this tells us that, hey, listen, it's going to be okay. I got frogs. And they don't. The Lord will come. And when he comes, he will humiliate the wise by their own desires. Their false worship, And trust in anyone other than him is not fruitfulness, but fruitlessness. The only fruit by which we can bear with our lives and last and has any kind of eternal significance is the fruit that is born out of obedience and surrender to Jesus Christ. There's an illustration that Paul Tripp uses and I think it's helpful there, and that is anyone who tries to produce fruit outside of a glad surrender to Jesus Christ is like picking up apples off of the ground and trying to staple them onto the tree. You can staple them on the tree, and it may look like and give the perception that those, that, that fruit came from the tree, but over tree, but over time that fruit will, not be, will begin to rot and eventually will fall again. And, and that's the, the fruitfulness of the world, like stapling t- fruit back onto the trees. But what the Bible shows us is that the sovereignty of God presses against that rotting fruit because the only lasting fruit is produced in Christ alone. The second thing we see in our passage this morning is how everything is determined by the will of God and we see that, I believe, in Moses' prayer. And I believe this is something huge. And I say it's really it's, it's huge and this is meaningful because, because here in verses 8 through 12, we see something pretty massive happen. And that is Pharaoh actually acknowledges the Lord. And he calls Moses and Aaron to come to him. And he, and he asks them to what? To plead before the Lord for them. They'll do what? to take away the frogs, the thing that just completely humbled them. And here's the the, the main point that I want you to see here is that Pharaoh needs Moses to pray for him, meaning, listen to this, meaning those who know the will of God according to the word of God Believers, Christians, his people, listen, are more instrumental in accomplishing the will of God than even the world's high and mightiest of people. Let me explain. This is a complete flip and reversal to any kind of worldly philosophy that says that those who are in position of power are the ones who have real authority. That they are the ones who are guiding and dictating and shaping future and and in the future of this world, this planet. And the Lord is showing us here very quickly through frogs that Pharaoh needs Moses to pray for him. Pharaoh needs Moses to pray for him, and that is showing the sovereignty of God and the strength of the prayers of his people. So in verse 8, after the the magicians failed again, the Egyptians' gods fail him. Pharaoh doesn't go into his house this time and hide away, but Pharaoh is put into a very hard place, isn't he? And we have to agree, he's put in a very difficult place, a rock in a hard place. And the only way he can turn is to do what? Is to have Moses and Aaron come and to call upon the Lord. To plead for him to take away the frogs. Again, look who knows the name of the Lord now. And all it took was frogs. Pray for us, Moses. Ask the Lord to take away the frogs and and, and I will let the people go and make sacrifice to the Lord. Right, a quid pro quo. You do this and I will do this. Now here's what I think is pretty cool. Is we see God fulfilling his word. What did he tell Moses earlier? He told Moses that it will be with a strong arm that I will compel Pharaoh to let my people go. Is this not an example of Pharaoh being compelled I mean, being compelled to be forced into into a position that he would rather not take. Of course. And that, brothers and sisters, is the sovereignty of God. And that he has compelled Pharaoh again with frogs. Beat him. So in verse 9, Moses Moses honors Pharaoh. I mean, he really does. He says, says, "No no time for disrespect. Right? That'll make matters worse. And Moses gives Pharaoh the choice. Pharaoh, you tell me, when do you want me to go pray before the Lord? Now, who could do that? Who who could do that? Which one of us could say that when we're getting hit by a massive hurricane, can say to our leaders, go tell me, just tell me when to go pray, and it'll be done. But here again, the demonstration of the sovereignty and power of God we can only dictate maybe time in our schedules when we try to get together and meet if circumstances allow. But there's always so much that can go wrong. But, but the Lord alone has the power to send and show his sovereignty over everything. And, and what does is, what is Pharaoh say in his request? He says very simply, he says, I want the frogs gone tomorrow. Tomorrow. So think about the situation. Millions of frogs everywhere. And he wants them gone tomorrow. There's no backhoes. There's no skid steers. There's no dump trucks. Who's going to get rid of these things? And they're in everything. They're in every single house. And to the natural man, we would look at this and we would say, that's a pretty unreasonable request. Who could pull this one off? If this is some natural occurrence, then it would take weeks for those frogs to die off and to go away. And what does Moses say? What you ask is what you get. Verse 10. And, it tell, and he tells us why. Again, to demonstrate so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And again, here, the purpose of the signs, right? To know that there's no one like the Lord our God. And these frogs are going to be killed off just the way that you wanted. So that you'll know. And each and every sign is pointing to that very fact. Now, isn't it interesting that Moses tells Pharaoh that the frogs will be taken away, but he doesn't, tell, he doesn't tell him how. He only says in verse 11 that the only living frogs will be left in the Nile. And I think that is for as a reminder that with each croak of a frog, they, will be remember, they would remember the infestation of frogs that the Lord gave them. And so what does Moses say he would do? Verse 12, he cries out to the Lord about the frogs and the deal that Pharaoh made. An interesting choice of word, he cries out. And when you cry out, that is denoting, that means something different than just kind of normal prayer time, doesn't it? It means that something significant is happening, something something crushing has happened, something needs to take place, something crucial, right? You're in these crucial moments and these crucial times. And to Moses, this is a crucial time in Exodus because right here, he just got the promise from Pharaoh that they would let his people go if God would take away the frogs. And this is a crucial time that he cries out. We'll also see later a crying out to God when the Egyptian army is bearing down on them on the shores of the Red Sea. Moses cries out, a lot is at stake. But God's power and his sovereignty is on the line. Now I want you to think about this whole scene in just these few verses. But I want you to imagine this story being told by by these Israelites years later, decades later. An older person sitting next to the, the campfire with their grandchildren and they're telling them this story. That this is how God redeemed us. And this is how God took us out. And they would certainly describe to them, hey, this is, we were so powerless. We had nothing. We had no wages. Everything we had was given to us by Pharaoh and he could take everything away from us. We were always at a constant threat of death. We had no homes we had nothing to say of our own. We had no way to make our lives better. But then all of a sudden, the most powerful man in the world at the time, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had to humble himself to God and to, the, to, the, to, the, to God, the, the, the God of these slaves. And had to humble himself by calling his prophet Moses and Aaron and to beg for relief from them. And what does that show them? What what are they communicating to their grandchildren? What is it communicating to us? It's communicating to us that Israel is not in the hand of Pharaoh, but Israel is in the hand of the Lord. And because Moses, who, who goes and prays on behalf of Pharaoh, which means what we, can, what we can gain here again is that our prayers are more significant to the course of the will of God in his the will of God in history than the power of rulers in this world. I and mean, think about how significant that is. Now our prayers do not dictate God, we do not command God or coerce him to our wills. But in his sovereignty, he has designed by his will that his people would be instruments of his decree. And therefore, our prayers move to the course of his will and for the building of his kingdom forward. It always seems like we're the powerless ones, doesn't it? It always seems like we're the most insignificant, that our prayers are ineffectual. And maybe that's why we struggle with prayer. We don't understand these things where we've seen that prayer is just ineffectual. But in fact, what this passage is telling us this morning is that it's the exact opposite. Now, some of you may be struggling this morning. There may have be some chaos in your life. And in those, that chaos, you may seem to be powerless. But whatever we may think is powerful at a human level, what we try to do to fix those powerless moments, it cannot match the power according to God's sovereignty in our prayers according to his sovereign will. You are never completely powerless, brothers and sisters, in this world when you serve a sovereign God, the sovereign God. The sovereign Lord. And so when we pray, not my will, but your will be done, that is power. Not because you're manifesting something in your words, because you can conjure something up, because, but it's the person to whom you're praying to, the sovereign God. And he conforms our wills according to his will. And lastly, we have see even in judgment the mercy of God. That even in his sovereign judgment of Egypt, we still see his mercy. In verses 13 through 15, the end of this section, of course, is kind of sad overall. Because even though this sign of the frogs is an execution of God's judgment, there is still, we still see mercy. In verse 13, we, we hear very clearly that the Lord answers Moses' prayer exactly as he asked, that all the frogs would die out. And they were. Right? They all, they all died. All the frogs in the houses, in the courtyards, and on the fields. In verse 14 tells us that although the frogs are dead now, the consequences of their death and that the judgment is, still remains. And so there needed to be a cleanup process, right? And the cleanup process is cleaning up the mess of all of these dead frogs piled up. That is an image that has been in my head all week long, just as heaps of like lifeless amphibian frogs, just, you know, sticking their tongue tang out, the white underbelly sticking out, stuff like that. Just piled up. And again, it tells us that they stank that they smelled. And of course, we think of the stench of piled up millions and millions of frog carcasses drying in the desert sun. And we have to think about, we get a description of their smell because this is a person who was there and they smelled it. Only people who have smelled things like this understand how bad it really can get. Now I want you to see something because, again, we, this, this is such a play off of what we've seen earlier. In chapter 5, verse 21, when the foreman accused Moses and Aaron, what did they say to Moses and Aaron? It says, you have made us to what? To stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. But here in Exodus chapter 8, what, what's happened? It's Egypt that stinks. It's not the Israelites. It's Egypt that stinks. We see another great reversal taking place here. Egypt had what? Egypt had the stench of death with these piles and piles of dead frogs everywhere. And we must understand that this stench of death is meaning something, right? It's not just pointing back to chapter five because of the accusation, but it's pointing forward because the sign of death is what is going to come. But this time, when it comes, the sign of death, it will not be frogs that the Egyptians will be piling up outside of their homes, but it will be the bodies of their firstborn children. It will not be frogs, dead frogs floating in the Red Sea, but it would be the bodies of their soldiers floating as God uh, releases those waters upon them. And as humorous as the frogs are, and we certainly we can laugh at this and we can enjoy it, these frogs are a sign to come, to repent, because you do not know what this judgment is going to be like, because the stench of death will now will seem like nothing when it comes. But when we come to verse 15 where Pharaoh, he, he saw a respite and judgment. And this is, this, is man's, this, this is what man does. They make a commitment to God on some level, and then they run from it as soon as there's a respite. As soon as there's something that, that takes off, the, the cancer's healed or, or something, whatever it may be, and then they just run from it. They run from the Lord, right? This is the, the seed that's scattered on shallow soil. And here's Pharaoh. As soon as there's a, a little bit of respite and judgment, what does he do? His heart hardens, just as we know. He ignores God's word, and he doesn't listen to them, and he does not let his, the people go. He goes back on his word. And what I also want to show you here, there is another great reversal for us and a lesson to be learned by Israel and for us. And that again points us back to chapter 5, verse 9. Pharaoh says, let heavier work be laid upon the men that they may labor at it and pay no regards to lying words. Who is the liar now? Is it God? Is God the liar or is it Pharaoh? You see, brothers and sisters, this is how evil works. They always accuse the righteous of the evil, the evil that they are planning or the evil that they're already doing or the evil that they intend to do. That's what evil does. And in this passage, in this story, is is telling us and is showing us, brothers and sisters, it is begging us to not follow this kind of reprobate. Do not follow this kind of evil. Pharaoh is wicked and he has condemned himself. And so at this point, why didn't why didn't the Lord then just go straight to death? Why didn't God just get, oh yeah? Watch me do this, Pharaoh. Why does he continue with the signs then at this point? Why doesn't he just go right to the sign of death? Because God is merciful. He is merciful. We saw him in, in Peter. Why, is, why, is, uh, why do people still turn away from the gospel? Why hasn't Christ come back yet? Because he's merciful that they would repent. And with ever increasing escalation of the signs, he is showing his, his mercy to all of us to repent, to do not go down the same road. Brothers and sisters, friends, listen. That is our God. That is our God. That is the God of the Bible who is more patient and more gracious and loving in ways far more than we can ever imagine. And here in Exodus, he is putting his mercy on display through frogs. The Lord knew Pharaoh was lying. was was lying. He already told us that. He knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew his heart was hard. He knew he wouldn't relent, but yet still, he answered Moses' prayer. And guess what? This isn't going to be the last time that Pharaoh turns back on his word and lies. And this whole thing is, is, is reminds me, brothers and sisters, of something very significant that happened in the New Testament that can be very confusing to us. In the New Testament, in John chapter 13, on the night that Jesus was arrested, we see that he has the Lord's Supper with his, with his disciples. And something amazing happens that night. Something a lot amazing happens that night. But one of the amazing things that John records is that Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He washes the feet of all of his disciples. But John is very poignant and tells us something about one of the disciples. He tells us about Judas Iscariot, who was there. And this is the Judas who betrayed Jesus, who was about to have him arrested. In fact, it says, John tells us that the devil had already put this in his heart to do so. He had already made the plan. And yet, the sovereign son of God still bowed his knee. And he took the dirty feet of Judas, the betrayer, who was a thief and a reprobate like Pharaoh, and he washed his feet. That's astounding. But the question is, why? Why? Why would God do this? And I love what John Calvin says. John Calvin made, makes it very clear. He says, he says, Jesus knelt to wash his feet, the son of perdition, who had been doomed to reprobation from the beginning of time, that he might open the gate of repentance. And here's what that means. If Jesus can offer the gospel to Judas and the Lord offer a sign after sign after sign to Pharaoh, then brothers and sisters, there is no one that we cannot offer the gospel to. Our belief in the sovereignty of God does not, take, does not restrict our taking of the gospel to all, but it frees us up. And for those who may not be a Christian here this morning, or maybe an unbeliever that you may know, this passage in Exodus chapter 8, these simple multitude of frogs are a warning to us to do not go headlong into judgment because it will not end well. Do not go to headlong into judgment, but to repent and to believe and to trust in Christ and rely only on his righteousness. So be encouraged, little flock. Our God is sovereign. And in some strange ways, he is sovereign, even over croaking frogs that can remind us of that. So when you hear frogs, think about the sovereignty of God. And be rejoicing that he has saved you from his judgment. Be encouraged to always come to him in prayer. Because prayer is not powerless but it is the means by which we go forth in the kingdom of God. Because where we are weak, he is strong. And lastly, brothers and sisters, Christian, rejoice and delight in the mercy of God. And may we plead with the unbeliever to be warned and to repent and to trust in Christ alone for their salvation. And all of God's people say. Amen. Amen.